production. Hello, A Life of Greatness listeners. I wanted to let you know about my private Facebook group called Live Your Life Greatly. It's a space for our community of like-minded people to give advice and tips on how to live a life of love and meaning. Search Live Your Life Greatly in Facebook groups. You can also join me on Instagram at Sarah Grimberg for daily inspiration, videos and behind-the-scenes footage. Search Sarah Grimberg on Instagram. Rongan Chasji is a British physician, author, television presenter and podcaster. He believes doctors are largely taught to cure illnesses by just treating symptoms. Their training is not as useful for the current epidemic of chronic lifestyle-related conditions that now flood our surgeries. Rongan says, With progressive medicine, I focus on finding the root cause of diseases and help my patients make their illnesses disappear. This conversation traverses many realms, how our mental health affects our physical health, the power of choice and the tools that are needed to harness happiness. Happiness is a skill. It is a skill you can develop, you can work on, you can get better at if you know what to practice on. I'm Sarah Grimberg and this is A Life of Greatness. Working as a podcast and radio producer, I have been fortunate enough to cross paths with many intriguing people who have had a profound impact on me. In this series, I share stories and experiences from the people who have brought inspiration to my life and hopefully yours too. Rongan Chasji is the author of many New York Times bestselling books, including his newest book, Happy Mind, Happy Life, 10 Simple Ways to Feel Great Every Day. In its essence, this conversation is about the quest for universal consequence beyond the material and the power of owning and standing in your truth. My hope is that this conversation gives you the tools to transcend the past, move forward, and ultimately live your best life. Rongan, it's really wonderful to have you on the podcast. You are a doctor and physician. What made you want to go into that profession? Hi, Sarah. First of all, thanks for inviting me on the show. It's a real honor to be on your podcast and uh, speak to your, you know, I guess global audience, but a huge part of it will be Australian, uh, which is really exciting for me. Um, Look, I grew up in a family of medics. You know, my dad was a doctor. You know, lots of his family were doctors. And, you know, I've learned over, you know, over 20 years as a doctor in all the things that I've done, that actually our upbringing And what we get exposed to as children hugely influences what we think is possible in the world. Mm. So why did I become a doctor? Well, there's many different ways to answer that. Yes, I've always had this natural tendency um, to to care for others. You know, I think I very much absorbed that from my mum. She was always really good at looking after other people. I saw that. I think I probably learned it from her, how to do that with people. So that would be the obvious answer. You know, I was naturally drawn to caring. And that's, of course, why I ended up being a doctor, so I could help people. And there's certainly an element of truth to that. But actually, I don't think that's the whole story. The whole story is, you know, that the wider wider perspective, I would say, is that a lot of immigrants have a certain view of the world, right? I can talk about 
Indian immigrants to the UK, for example, in the 1960s and the 1970s, the British government recruited doctors from India and other countries in the subcontinent to come and fill staff shortages in this country, in the UK. My dad was one of those doctors who came over and he came over with nothing. He, you know, tries to set up a better life for him and his family, but you know, faces a lot of discrimination, faces a lot of difficulty. And there's very much a mentality that I've experienced growing up and I've seen in lots of my friends growing up in their families, if they're from immigrant backgrounds as well, that they really, really prioritize academic success, mm. right? It's a big thing. And as I've got older and as I've spoken to my parents and understood their life with a bit more perspective than I did certainly growing up, you know, you realize that actually for them, they were trying to avoid us having the same problems that they had. Mm -hmm. So in their head, if you can crush it at school and get straight A's and get one of these kind of top professions in their words, like, you know, medicine or law and go to a great university, then in their eyes, you weren't going to have any problems in life. You weren't going to face the same struggles. So yes, I've always been drawn to caring, and I think that's a big part of it. But also, that's what I saw growing up. Like, my dad was a doctor. All of my parents' friends were doctors. And all of their kids, at least one kid in every family that I knew growing up, went off to medical school. Yeah. It was just what was valued. So if you'd asked me this 10 years ago, Sarah, I would have given you a very different answer. But the truth is, I think it was a combination of those things that... And honestly, it wasn't like the proudest moment of my life when I got into medical school. Mm. It was, it's not that I'm, I'm incredibly proud to be a doctor. I love being a doctor. But at that time, I guess it was just my norm. Everyone around me was going to med school. So it was just like, oh yeah, cool. I got into medical school. But I'm not saying that to be blasé about it. I'm saying that because I really, as a parent as well, I really, really feel that what we expose our kids to often determines what they think is possible in the world. Mm, that's so true. And you mentioned briefly that your dad was obviously very hardworking, a doctor. He wanted to make a really nice life for you and your, your family, but he struggled in his field being an immigrant, which then also led to your mum having her own kind of demise. Can you talk to us a bit about that and how he got treated? Yeah, now the first thing I want to say is my dad never, ever complained about this. Mm. I only heard about this, you know, in the last few years, few months of dad's life, right, when he was really sick and he kind of shared personal things with me that he had never said before. So, mm. you know, dad never complained. He, he, his view was, you know, this is not my country. You know, I, I, I am a foreigner in the UK. Um, I just got to get on with it. And, you know, I've just got to take the opportunities that are there. And if, if, there's a, if, if there's a roadblock here, I need to change what I do because it's not my country. But he, he would say to me, right at the end, before dad died, he said to me that, look, I put up with it because this was my second country. You're not going to put up with it in the same way because you were born here, mm. right? So... What, what would happen? Dad was uh, in a field called obstetrics and gynecology and he loved that field and apparently he was a brilliant surgeon. I've only 
realize this since dad died. I didn't know this. Like yeah. I've heard it from some of dad's old colleagues and friends. They said, your dad was such a good surgeon. He would teach us how to operate. He was so meticulous. Mm. But I thought, I never knew this about my dad. Like he never said this to me. I never knew this. But basically what would happen is that he would train what he calls the local doctors and he would teach them how to do various operations. And a few years later, they jumped him for promotions. And he said, this kept happening for years after years. And he soon realized, oh, I'm never going to get a promotion here. I'm never going to be able to advance here. And he made the decision to move to a different speciality that frankly, he didn't enjoy. But he did it because he could make what we call consultant grade in that speciality, which would give him stability for his career and his family. So he did it, but he didn't enjoy it. He did what he felt he had to do. Now, as part of dad's work career in the UK, like I, I look back on it now and I shudder and I don't quite know how dad did it because he would have his day job as a consultant at Manchester Royal Infirmary. And dad would only sleep three nights a week because on four nights, what would happen, he would go off at 7 p.m. in the evening. So let's say a typical weekday, right? He'd come home from work, maybe half five, six-ish. And then mum would serve him dinner. And I remember he'd go upstairs and he'd shave. And then at 7 p.m., a, a car would pick dad up and dad would be out all night doing GP house calls. Oh and he'd get dropped off again at 7 a.m. Again, he'd come in, have breakfast, he'd go up and shave. And then he'd go out, he'd drive into Manchester, like 13 miles away, and work all day, and then come back. And so for 30 years, my dad only slept for three nights a week. So four nights a week, he wasn't sleeping. And of course, that has an impact on his health. I'm convinced that's what ended up killing my dad and yeah. making him sick at 59. I, you know, I now know the science very well on what uh, chronic stress does to the body and your risk of autoimmune disease, what chronic sleep deprivation does to your immune system and the risk of autoimmune disease, because dad actually got lupus and kidney failure. And so the last 15 years of his life, he was very, very sick. But you also asked, what was the impact on my mum? So my mum was also an immigrant to the UK didn't have her family and friends around her. She, she gets married to dad, she comes over, you know, she's a mother to me and my older brother, but dad's never around, mm. right? So she's in a foreign country, a foreign city without friends. And I remember mum would be, I didn't realize it at the time, but I can look back now and go, she was addicted to soap operas, right? Australian soap operas like Neighbours <laughs> and Home and Away. Um, but, but, but bold and beautiful, yes. heart to heart, um, you know, British ones like Coronation Street, EastEnders, mum would watch them all, like literally watch them all. And when we, if we ever went on holiday, she would make sure she taped on a video recorder every single episode. Mm -hmm. And I didn't see it at the time, but that was her way of coping with the loneliness and the numbness of not having her partner, her husband around. Uh, being by herself, just looking at the two young kids. And again, mum never complained to me, right? I, I want to, you know, I've only had these insights in the last few years mm. as I've, you know, in many ways, as I've been, you know, writing my latest book, I've been thinking a lot about my childhood and mum and dad's experience in the UK. And I think these days, the equivalent for people is being hooked on Instagram and mm. TikTok and spending three hours scrolling um, or 
you know, online shopping, just scrolling for the for the next deal for a few hours. Again, I'm not criticizing any of it, but a lot of the time these behaviors are serving a role in our life. And I think as a doctor, one of the big one of the big failures, I think, of public health guidelines in general is that we don't help people understand the root cause of their behaviors. We say, let's say with alcohol, for example, we say you shouldn't have any more than this number of units a week. Mm. Okay. Fine. I get I, I understand we need guidelines, but it's so dry, right? I don't think that really connects with people on an emotional level in terms of helping them really change their behavior. You know, for most people, well, I shouldn't say for most people, for a lot of people, let's say alcohol, right? That is serving a role for many of my patients. It's helping them soothe the stress that exists in their life or numb the loneliness and the discomfort they feel. So yeah, sure, they can try and stop. And often in January, for a few weeks, they will stop, you know, new year, new year and all that. But if you don't address the underlying cause, there's too much stress in my life or I feel lonely, well, you, the behavior is going to creep back. And I've seen this time and time again with my patients. So yeah, that's a little bit on mum and dad. You know, I will say I'm very proud of them. I think they, I'd like to think they brought me and my brother up really, really well. They did the best that they could. But yeah, there was a huge amount of struggle they went through. Knowing what you do now, and especially seeing your mum and your dad and being a doctor, how important is listening to your patients? And I mean really listening to them when they come in. Listening is the most important skill, in my view, that any doctor can have. Mm. It, it's, it's really crucial. I have created this course called Prescribing Lifestyle Medicine that's accredited by the Royal College of GPs. And it's the only course of its kind. And we, we've trained thousands of doctors and healthcare professionals in the, in the UK and around the world on how we can use lifestyle as medicine with our patients because we're not taught how to do this. Mm. And a question that often comes up at the end of the day in these Q&As is, hey, Dr. Chastity, you know, in, in all your years of experience, what's the most important thing that you've learned? And I always say this, I say the most important lesson I've learned having seen tens of thousands of patients is this, connect first, educate second. Yeah. And what I've learned is that until you have really connected with that patient that's sitting across the table from you, if we just try and move into solution mode and give them education on what they need to do, it doesn't work. It, it kind of falls on deaf ears. It's that, I think there's a phrase, you know, no one, uh, well, it's something like no one really cares how much you know until they know how much you care yeah. or something like that. And I feel I've always naturally been drawn to that as a doctor, which is when that patient comes in, let me make sure that they feel heard and seen and listened to. Um, and I learned that very early on, Sarah, in my career as a GP. I was, you know, I'd done all my specialist exams. I was doing kidney medicine and hospital medicine. And I decided to move to general practice because I didn't want to just see one part of the body. I wanted to see how everything linked together. And I remember in maybe my first or second week as a GP, I done all my training, done my exams, and a lady walked in. She was around 20 years old. And she was really, really struggling with her mood. She, she was struggling with motivation. She often wouldn't get out of bed in the morning. 
She had no lust for life anymore. She felt really indifferent. All kinds of things were going on. And she had symptoms that were consistent with depression. No question at all. And my guidelines were pointing me towards prescribing an antidepressant for her. Mm. And actually the waiting list for counseling was like nine months at that time uh, when I was seeing that patient. So I just thought, this doesn't feel right to me. Like, I don't want to just put her on a pill at the moment. I need to understand what's going on. So I spent about 25 minutes talking to her, even though I had patients waiting outside and building up. And at the end, I said, hey, listen, look, um, I'd, I'd really love to help you, know, you understand what's going on and me to get a better sense of what's going on. Can you come back tomorrow at the end of my morning clinic and I'll spend a bit more time talking to you? And she said, yeah, sure. So she came back the following day. We spoke a bit more. And then I'd see her in my clinic once a week. And I'd listen, right? I would just provide this safe space for her where she was able to talk to me in a way that she couldn't to anyone in her family or her friend circle. Either she couldn't or she didn't. But what happened is that bit by bit, through her conversation with me, she got to understand herself. And she got to figure out that, you know what, I split it with my boyfriend a few months ago. I haven't really processed that. I do feel really down. I'm staying up late watching box sets till gone past midnight. I'm knackered every morning. I'm drinking too much booze. And bit by bit, she started to change those behaviors herself. Mm. And six to eight weeks later, she's like a different person, right? And if I saw her a few months after that. She had no problems at all, right? So I didn't label her with depression. She... Uh, managed to figure out that actually a lot of the way she felt was an appropriate response to what was going on in her life that she hadn't actually dealt with. And so going back to your question, Sarah, I learned very early on in my career as a GP, if you can listen well, that is very, very powerful medicine. Mm. You said something earlier which really struck a chord and I've thought about it a lot in my life, especially over the last three or so years that I've had this podcast is that everyone wants to be seen and they want to be heard. And that's really important. I mean, you don't have to host a podcast to recognize that we have that between friends and family. And for anyone that's listening to this conversation, just to be so aware of actually taking the time to properly listen to someone who needs you or just to a friend who's just telling you about their day. It's not all about having your story being told the whole time. It's it's like a, it's a two-way streak. Yep. And sometimes you might not talk as much in a conversation, but that's absolutely okay. But to have the skill of listening, I believe is one of the most important things that we can have as a person and be able to give someone else as well as a gift. Yeah, I completely agree. And it's, I think a lot of the time why we struggle is because we actually can often feel uncomfortable ourselves. So when Mm. someone, let's say, is opening up and sharing something deeply personal or troubling for them, it often makes us feel uncomfortable. And before you know it, we can make it about us or, or rush into a solution or, you know, say, oh yeah, yeah, I know, I know how you feel. You know, I, I had this in my own life a few years ago. You know, I used to do that. And I've realized, well, there's a time and a place for that, yeah. but it's not about you. It's, 
it's about sitting with that person. It's about allowing them to know, you know what, I can really be my true, authentic, vulnerable self with this person without fear of judgment, mm. without fear of criticism. And as I say, I think one tip I would give people is try to listen and not try and figure out where you want the conversation to go afterwards. Mm. Like just sit with what's happening. And, you know, in, you know, if I talk about my own marriage for a moment, I've had to learn how to listen better in, you know, with my wife. I, I, you know, I'm not saying this is necessarily a male-female thing. I know a lot of people think it is. Uh, and there's this prejudice, I wouldn't say prejudice, there's this, there's this view yeah. out there. I don't know if that's strictly true, but often if my wife would share something with me, I'd rush in to give a solution. Like, I felt, oh, I can see how you can fix this and give a solution. And I've learned that over the years, actually, she actually doesn't want that from me. She just wants me to listen and hear mm. her feelings about whatever's going on. And so now we have, you know, you know, I, I feel we communicate much better than we used to because I'll often say if she shares something, hey, babe, can I just be clear here? Do you want me to listen or do you want me to, um, you know, offer a solution? And she'll often say, no, I just want you to listen. I'm like, okay, cool. That, that's like, instead of imagining that our partners should know what's magically in our head, which I think a lot of the time people do, it's like, no, we have this open communication where we now understand, oh, that's the way it is. So I then know, okay, Rangan, even if you are bursting inside to give a solution to something that you think you know how to fix, actually just shut up and listen yeah. and be there. And so that's been a, a really big learning for me. And I think, I like to think I listen well with my patients, but we can all improve. I'm sure I can improve as a doctor. And I've certainly, I've just shared something where I can improve as a husband and I have improved. So I think no matter who you are and whatever your starting point is, actually learning to be a better listener, I think can, can reap huge benefits. Yes, for the other person, but, but also for ourselves. Absolutely. And we were talking at the start about upbringing and how that sometimes shapes us and not that we can't move on from that and become different people, but it is what we, it's a basis for what we first see in our world. And it's interesting because I've been thinking about listening a lot, having this profession. And my son said to me, he's only nine, he said to me a few years ago, and he's a gorgeous soul, very sensitive. He goes, you just don't listen, mum. I try to talk to you, but you're never listening. He just wants me, he doesn't even want me to say anything back. Yeah. Similar to what you were saying about your wife. He just wants me to listen to what he's saying. He wants to be acknowledged. He wants to know that his words have meaning. And it really hit home because the way that I am with both of my children now is so different because yeah. I don't want them to feel that they weren't heard or acknowledged when they were young because that can have a real impact on you when you're growing up. So yeah, I think that's a really important thing for us to do with our kids as well. Yeah, but what, what you've just shared there is so powerful. And to me, it speaks to real awareness, right? A lot of the time, and I've seen this, and I've probably been guilty of this in the past, like we think we know best. Yes. And you know, if, if, if our kids are saying that, it's like, no, no, I do listen. Well, hold on a minute. If your child, and then forget children from, not even forget children, like let's expand it beyond children. Yeah. 
you can think you're a good listener, but if the person who is communicating with you doesn't feel it, well, there's a, <laughs> yes. you know, you can think all you want that you're a great listener, but that person doesn't feel heard. Absolutely. So we can either, we can either stay locked in our own head or go, okay, well, yeah, I, I feel I'm trying really hard here, but clearly for whatever reason, it's not having that impact on the person who's communicating with me. So what can I do better? And I agree with kids. It's something I try so hard as well to do is be present when I'm with them. Again, if they want to tell me something, make sure that you show them that, hey, yeah, I've got, you know, even if you feel time pressured, try and, try and give them the feeling, yeah, I've got all the time in the world. You tell me whatever's on your mind. And I've also learned to, to keep my lip uh, mm. firmly shut and just let them talk sometimes, which isn't something I think I did when they were, you know, five or six years ago. And I, I think the point I'm trying to make is that we can all learn and get better at this. Mm. And it's a constant journey to get better at this because I think, sure, some people are amazing listeners, but as I say, you can be, a, you're a great listener as a podcast host, but you learned that actually, you know, I can, I can get better as a parent, Yes, right? So, it's in all our relationships. Maybe in some relationships, we actually aren't good listeners. That's okay. Be aware of it. And then you can take some small steps to change that. Absolutely. Rongan, you have your new book, Happy Mind, Happy Life. And it talks about a subject which we're all seeking, I think, and that's happiness. And what I really want to speak about is, firstly, the book is really great. And it's honestly, it's for anyone listening, it's... It's such a straightforward book. It's so easy to read. There are steps in there for how to do all the different things, like listening is one of the things we just spoke about. But it's a, it's not a challenging book. But you have this concept, which I really loved, which you talk about being the three-legged stool. And there are, these, there are the three pillars with the three legs of the stool. I'd love you to talk a bit about them because I found that to be very interesting. I mean, first of all, Sarah, I really so appreciate what you just said because I do deeply think that all of us want more happiness in our lives. I think that's what life is about, but we have to be clear what we mean by happiness, which mm. I'm going to explain in just a moment. Core happiness, right? Core happiness is what I think all humans want. Happiness gets misinterpreted by society, I think, a lot, where we now think it is about having a smile on our face the whole time, uh, we think it's about that that billboard image of the smiling couple on the beach with their children and the ocean behind them. Okay, what is that? That's a pleasurable experience. It can form part of a happy life. But I don't think that's happiness in and of itself. But I think many of us think that is happiness and therefore we feel, you know, substandard that we can't meet that goal. Our day-to-day -day life is full of struggles and obstacles and, and adversity. And so I try to reframe it for people and, and take a step back and go, okay, when we think about humans wanting happiness, what are we talking about? We're talking about core, what, well, what I call core happiness in this book. And it's like a, a three-legged stool and each of these legs is separate, but essential. And the mm. three legs are alignment, contentment, and control. Now, I spent a lot of time thinking about this. Does this model work in every single situation? And I'm so far, I really think it does. And I've, I've created it in a way that happiness can seem like this kind of vague, ethereal concept. And I wanted to make it really practical and show people that, look, happiness is a skill. 
It is a skill you can develop, you can work on, you can get better at if you know what to practice on. And, you know, if you know what to practice, and so we've got these these three legs that you can work on in your life. So what do I mean by those those three things? Well, what do I mean by the first one? Alignment. Mm. So alignment is when the person who you are truly are inside and the person who you are actually being out there in the world are one and the same. Now, it sounds quite simple, but it really isn't because many of us develop aspects of our personality, of our life to fit in with other people. And before we know it, we realize who are we? Why, mm-hmm. why are we living a life that's not truly ours, whether it's in our job, whether it's the way we show up with our friends or our colleagues. And it's not like, oh, you read that and go, oh, yes, I'm going to be more aligned now. No, it's it's a process that takes time. And since my dad died nine years ago, I've been on a very introspective journey to try and figure out my own life. You know, uh, whose life am I really leading or was I leading? Am I, is it my life or someone else's? Why do certain things trigger me in certain ways? And it's through that inner journey that I'm at the point in my life now, in my early 40s, where I feel more calm, more content, more happy than I've ever been before. Mm. And it feels really great. And it it's because I've been applying these lessons of this core happiness tool. So alignment is one of them. I'm much more aligned now than I was five years ago. And I yeah. hope in two years time, I'll be even more aligned than I am now. It's not like a one hit. It's It's constant work. And there's some really great exercises in the book to help them start that process. The second leg is contentment. And this is really about you know, feeling calm and at peace with your life and your decisions. So what are those things in our life that give us that sense of calm and peace? And the third leg is control. Mm. And I thought long and hard about the word control because I think, I think control can be misinterpreted again. And I've tried to make it clear in the book what I mean. It's not about controlling your life or controlling the world. The world is inherently uncontrollable. We've seen that over the past couple of years, right? We can't control the world. This is about a sense of control. What are the things that you can do? You know, what are those things that you can do in your life that give you a sense of control? You know, we know that people who have a greater sense of control in their life have greater uh, motivation. They have better academic success. They earn more money. They live longer and they're happier. Mm -hmm. So for me, for example, uh, I have a little morning ritual that I do every day. I get up before my wife, before my kids, I, I spend 20, 30 minutes, you know, by myself, doing some breathing work, drinking a cup of coffee, reading an uplifting book. For me, it's really, really important that time alone with my thoughts. When I have it, I'm a better human being. I'm a better doctor. I'm a better husband. I'm a better parent. I'm a calmer uh, person in general. I get less stressed. And that little routine which I'm not saying everyone needs to do. We all need to find something in our life that gives us a sense of control. That helps to ground me every morning. So no matter what's going on in the news, no matter what goes on in my email inbox, no matter what happens with my patients, I've given myself a sense of control. And so really that's the core happiness stool. And I've I've really designed it in a way that people can almost put it in their back pocket and take it around in their lives with them so they can figure out, oh, oh, this thing's helping me feed my core happiness or this is helping to weaken my core happiness.
You talk about junk happiness in the book, which I think is such a fascinating topic and something that I think we've all been prey to at times, where basically we get happiness from these material items or things in our life that are not meaningful and only really give us that high for a short period of time. I'd love you to talk a little bit more about junk happiness. I compare core happiness to junk happiness. And I guess that relates to what we spoke about at the start of our conversation, Sarah, that we've all got a go-to junk happiness habits, you know, that we turn to when, I don't know, we feel stressed or we feel uncomfortable or we feel lonely or, you know, we don't feel good. It could be, you know, sugar, Instagram, alcohol, gambling, um, you know, the truth is online pornography is a big problem yes. these days. You know, really, really big problem that is not spoken about enough. It's wreaking havoc in relationships and families. Uh, I see so many young men and women who are struggling uh, with a kind of addiction to online pornography. And so... Why do you think that's so big now? How, why do you think that it's risen so much in the last few years? Uh, smartphones. Yeah. You know, if you think about any behavior, accessibility, any behavior, whether you're talking about, let's say, a healthy lifestyle behavior we're trying to bring in, right? We know from the research that if you make that behavior easy to do, you are much more likely to do it, Mm. much more likely, right? So as part of my morning routine, I do a five-minute bodyweight workout every morning, right? But here's the thing. I do it in my pajamas, I made it so easy. Like I come down, I do my breathing and my meditation and then I make coffee. And in the five minutes while my coffee is brewing, in my pajamas, in my night clothes, I do a bodyweight workout in my kitchen. There's a dumbbell and a kettlebell sitting there in my kitchen. I made it so easy that I could barely not do it. Right? It's just like brushing my teeth for me. I don't have to you know, drive 20 minutes to a gym decide what outfit I'm going to wear, put on my shoes, you know, all these obstacles, right? So if you make something easy to do, you're much more likely to do it. Amazon, right, did this with one-click ordering. When Amazon moved to one-click ordering a few years ago, there are estimates online saying that their profits went up by $300 million a year, right? Because what used to happen in the past, you know, know, it feels like a long, long time ago now, (laughs) you would have to, you know, check everything, click to the next screen, put in your card details, go to the next screen. You know, there were four or five steps to take before you could place that order. Now, certainly here in the UK, and I'm sure it's the same in Australia, Mm. with one-click ordering, before you've blinked, something's arriving later on that day. (laughs) It's so easy that you do it. It's the same thing with YouTube and Netflix, why they roll one video into the next. So before you realize it's midnight and... I need to be up early tomorrow morning and go to bed. You're into the next episode. Yes. So you keep watching, right? So if you want to make a behavior stick, you have to make it easy to do. And you mentioned online pornography. Why is it such uh, a big problem these days? It's, it's because of ease of access. Mm. Well, that's one of the reasons. Ease of access means that um, if someone wants to access something online, they can literally access it within a second of having that thought. There is no blockage to that. Yeah. Like there there potentially may have been in the past. Uh, But it's also, it's not just that for me. It's also because we're missing 
a strong sense of community and mm. tribe, many of us. And I think there's a very powerful case study that I write about in, in my new book about a young man who was really struggling with online pornography addiction. I think he was 20 years old and he had not told anyone and he couldn't look me in the eye when he was in the consultation room with me. He was that ashamed of himself and embarrassed. And, you know, I, I detail the whole story in the book, but, but the, the top line here is that he had tried to use willpower and he couldn't, right? He couldn't, but he was very isolated, very alone. He wasn't part of a tribe or a community and we went through various options, but he ended up joining a boxing gym, right? For whatever reason that appealed to him, that literally changed his life because wow. he said to me after a few weeks, hey, you know, Dr. Chashi, before I went to this boxing gym, I'd never work out, you know, but in a boxing gym, if they say 10 press-ups, it means 10 press-ups. So I stay there and I do my 10 press-ups. And what would happen is little by little, as his self-confidence, his self-esteem, his tribe grew, he felt part of that group. Within a few months, he wasn't consuming any online porn at all. So again, it goes back to what I was saying before, lots of our behaviors in life serve a role. All of mm -hmm. them do. They're there for a reason. Can we figure out the reason and then often if we, if we can and we can address it, the behavior falls away naturally without even trying. So it's not just the ease of access. And here's the truth. And people often, you know, around something like pornography, there's a discomfort talking yes. about it. And the truth is, you know, when I submitted this, um, the first edit of the book to my publishers, and they're, they're fantastic. They really support me. They said, hey, wrong look, you know, there's two pages uh, on online pornography. Do you think it has to be in the book? I think it's going to be very off-putting for, um, you know, for, for, some, for some readers perhaps. And I thought about it and I said, look, if at this stage in my career, you know, this is my fifth book with this profile and this reach, if I can't talk about something that I feel is so important that I'm seeing in my consultation room, right? What kind of hope is there? Like, mm. how are we ever going to address this topic if people don't start talking about it? And so I felt very strongly that if people do feel uncomfortable in that session, that's okay, right? But it will be affecting somebody in your life. I guarantee it is affecting currently. I think it's that widespread. And it may be your child, yeah. right? Maybe your teenagers who are really struggling with this and they, they're too ashamed to talk about it. But let's be really clear about this. At its core, there's not that much difference. Or you could argue between doing that, let's say, and mindlessly numbing, uh, numb-scrolling Instagram for three hours, yeah. right? It's just your drug of choice to, new, to, to soothe the discomfort that you feel. So we don't need to demonize this stuff. We need to help people who are struggling get help speak up without fear of judgment because you know addictions like this they thrive with shame yeah. and they thrive with secrecy so i'm very passionate that a lot of these addictions aren't quite as different uh, as we think i think it is as well and i'm happy that you left it in there because like you said if people feel uncomfortable they can skim over it but it's going to affect people and help people who have this issue or know someone that does and that within itself is enough to keep it in. You open up about 
when many years ago when you're pub- you've got a lot of books, one of them was being published and you said how you were at the publishers and they mentioned there's already an Indian doctor so they weren't going to publish your book at that time and you didn't say anything. and Yeah. And then it came out in one of your podcast interviews when someone else was being quite vulnerable and saying a, a different story but related. And I thought good on you for putting that in your book and highlighting that because I think that also has a lot to do with happiness when we're not speaking our truth. And that goes a lot into the alignment thing as well about who are we, what are our values? And I mean, how many times, especially when we're young, do we think a certain way? It might be even seeing someone in the schoolyard get bullied and we know it's not right and we see someone else doing it but we are too scared to speak up and say something because we don't want the bully to turn on us and God knows what the thoughts are. And then it happens in this environment too. And I've heard people say anti-Semitic things about being Jewish and many years ago and didn't say anything and then would get home and think, why did I let them get away with that? Or they probably didn't even realise what they were saying, but I could have educated them better. I think really when we know our values and we speak our truth, the, the true happiness really comes through. Yeah, Sarah, su- such, such great points there. You're absolutely right. And again, it can feel hard at first if you spent your whole life since you were a child or since a certain incident as a child where you felt, no, I can't be who I really am because then there's going to be a problem or I won't be accepted or or whatever. That's okay. We all have that. I've had that for much of my life, but you can change. You know, awareness is the first step, right? People say, oh, now that I'm aware, so what? You know, what can I do? It's like, (laughs) hold on a minute. Let's not undervalue how big a step awareness is because many of us are just walking around with blindfolds thinking we're living our life when we've never even taken time to ask ourselves, well, what does our life really mean? What are my values? That's one of my favorite exercises in the book is how you figure out what your core values are and how you can then start to exhibit them and live by them in all aspects of your life. And if you, if, you're, if you are not currently, that's okay. You can work on changing that. But that instant you mentioned, right? I remember it very clearly because this was maybe four years ago, right? So my first book, The Four Pillar Plan, had come out the year before, right? And, you know, in spite of me not having any, um, you know, I was a first-time author. So I wasn't in any of the bookshops. You know, I didn't have any shelf space. And hey, that's, I understand publishing now. I understand that's the game. You know, they're, Shell space is limited. They're only going to put on books that they think are actually going to sell and deliver them a profit in bookshops. So I understand that now. Did I understand it then? No, I was frustrated that, oh man, I, I've spent a year and a half writing this awesome book. I think it's going to help people. You know, why they're not stocking it? Now, it happened to be a huge bestseller in spite of that through online sales and word of mouth. But then when my second book, when I'd written it, it was called The Stress Solution. And it was a few weeks before it came out. And I was down in London at a meeting at my publishers. And there were seven, six or seven people in the room. And just someone casually said in that meeting, hey, wrong, really good news that, you know, this big retailer are going to stock your book. Uh, they wouldn't take your last book because they already had a book by an Indian doctor on their shelves. And there was this real uncomfortable silence in the room. Nobody said anything. I didn't say anything. And then we kept going on with the conversation about the plans, what we're going to do, all this kind of stuff. 
And I remember, like, I didn't really know what was going on at the time. I just, I, I just didn't say anything. Right? I certainly feel for much of my life, I try to pretend to be someone who I'm not in order to fit in. Yeah. So, you know, Rongan definitely wouldn't want to make a fuss at this meeting at Penguin, you know, keep your mouth shut. But on the train home that evening, because I live two hours out of London, I was thinking about it and I just felt this discomfort. And actually I felt a bit, a bit of shame mm. that I'd let that pass. And I didn't really think about it consciously until maybe a year or two later when I spoke to Dr. Vivek Murthy um, on my podcast. And he was, as you say, sharing some very vulnerable things in his own life. And for some reason, him being vulnerable and open with me allowed that story to come out. I didn't even know it was bothering me. And that kind of speaks to what we said yeah. right at the start, Sarah, about my patient who came in and she was struggling. We're talking about listening, the power of conversation, you know, the power of really listening to someone. And I shared it with him in the moment in that podcast, which then enabled me to process it. And I wasn't angry. This is where I feel I've done so much personal growth on myself and a lot of these lessons I share in the book. Like I didn't then phone up my editor and go, this was outrageous. You should never have spoken to me like that. Right? I, I understand people who may feel like that, but that would have been a very victim narrative. You know, I can't believe they did that to me. They shouldn't have spoken to me. They should know better. No, I didn't do any of that. The old wrong in a 10 years ago probably would have, if I'm honest, I probably would have been quite agitated. No, I processed it and thought, okay, you know what? Let me calmly bring this up with them in a very compassionate way. And I sent my editor at the time a really lovely email. I said, listen, I just want to bring up something that's been on my mind for a couple of years. I don't know if you remember this or not. Um, I just think, you know, it's totally cool. I moved on from it. Uh, no, I didn't say that. I just said something like, I'm, I'm not feeling, you know, I understand that these things happen. I understand it was no one at Penguin. that They were just reporting back. Yeah. At what, what one person in sales for one of the retailers said. Um, but I think we should talk about it because there could be other authors who are in a similar position and they don't feel they can say anything and maybe they're feeling really bad. And the response was just wonderful. I got, you know, a phone call, email, everyone who was there independently sent me what's that to say wrong and we still remember that. And we all felt uncomfortable. I'm really sorry I didn't say anything. I didn't know what to say. Mm. So they've now changed things um, in the company. They brought up at the, at the kind of highest levels, these sort of conversations. And so I, I don't blame people if, they, if they're not ready for that yet, if they feel triggered in that moment and they can't look at it with compassion. I feel that I can reframe most situations in life now. I, I put it in the book, you know, write a happiness story you know, write an empowering happiness story about every situation rather than a disempowering victim story. Because if you write that disempowering victim story, you, you, you create a prison inside your mind. You know, you've created this unhappiness which affects every leg of that core happiness stool. And I would say that's one of the most important lessons for people to realize that actually, you actually do have a choice. Yes. In every single situation in life, you have a choice how you respond. It doesn't always mean it's easy, but you can train yourself to respond differently. And I think reframing things, I mean, you don't need anything for that. You've got your mind. It's all about the way that your perspective on life. And you use a beautiful quote in the book from a psychologist, Professor Daniel Nettle. He says, happiness stems mainly 
not from the world itself, but from the way people address the world. And it reminds me, I had Byron Katie on my podcast and she always talks about you go through these different questions and one of the first questions is, do you know for sure? 99% of the time when we're thinking these negative thoughts, none of them we know for sure to be true. It's called the inquiry and a lot of the time you can't even get through that first one before going, you know what, I've made this whole story up in my head about my boss sending the email thinking that he's really angry at me or he's this or he's that. You reread the email once you take a step back and you, you think about that and then you read it in such a different light. And I know for myself sometimes, and I'll keep going on the email thing, if I'm in a bad mood and I read emails fast, if I'm just reading it on my phone and then between doing different things, I don't interpret the email in the way that it's been written when I take my time and actually read it again. And 99% of the time when I reread it, I'm like, oh, that wasn't bad at all. That was, that was quite nice. So it's, yeah. I think that is one of the leading ways to become happier in your life is to definitely reframe, reframe your thoughts. Yeah, 100%. It's, it's something I, I work on as a parent with my children. Yes. I feel I kind of learned this in my late 30s, early 40s. I'm thinking, wouldn't it, wouldn't it be cool to learn this? <laughs> yes. Like at 9, 10, 11, what if you were to go through life Knowing this, then what 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 potential might there be out there for your inner calm and your inner yeah. peace? But I think it's really, really, it's an important skill. It's a trainable skill. Like if someone's listening and going, ah, it's not for me, right? I I, I was interviewed about four weeks ago. Um, the the Daily Telegraph's big sort of newspaper in the UK were. Uh, doing a, a big profile piece on me and serializing the book. And it, as we record this, it came out a couple of days ago. And I challenged the journalist at the end. She goes, wrong, and I, I get that that's an important skill. But, you know, I am that person who thinks the world is against me and always looks at the worst case yeah. scenario in these situations. And I said, okay, I challenge you, right? Maybe every day if you can, but several times a week, choose a moment of social friction where something has happened that you feel bothered by, by somebody else, and start reframing that story. Mm. Choose a happiness story. And that was about four weeks ago. Last night, we did an Instagram Live on the Telegraph's channel. And she interviewed me on this Instagram Live. And at the end, I said, how are you getting on? She goes, you know what? It's made a massive difference. I found it difficult at first, but it's getting easier. And she said, I've learned just to be a lot more compassionate and to realize that actually not everyone has the same perspective as me and that's okay. Yeah. And I think I was so, it was so wonderful for me. To, I know this stuff works on my own life. I've seen it with my patients, but when people come to it and they're like, yeah, I, I could see that that would work, but I'm not sure I can do that. It's so wonderful. Like I, I get a buzz every time I get feedback from people go, wow, it really works. It you does. can really do that. And what you were saying about rereading something later, just you know, this might be interesting for people, you know, you can look at your brain, you know, your brain is incredible, but think of it in two sort of broadly different categories as you were, right? So you've got the, the front part, which is the logical, rational part of your brain. And then you've got your, the other part, the deep emotional part of your brain, which is 
a lot older than the, than the, than the logical part of the front. And just think about those two parts of your brain. Both of them are vying for top spots, right? They want to be in control. Now, when you are feeling not stressed and you are calm and you're not feeling triggered, you know what? Your emotional brain is relatively quiet and the frontal part of your brain, what we call the prefrontal cortex, it, the logical, rational part of your brain is working fine. You can see things clearly, just as like you said, when you reread the email later when you're feeling calmer, yes. you can see it clearly. But if you're in that moment where you're doing other things, you're quickly checking on your phone, you're like, man, I can't believe they said that. You know, your logical brain's not on then. It's quiet and your emotional brain is ruling the roost. So as you train this skill of choosing your response, you train your brain and your your ability mm. basically to keep that logical brain on and help you make these kind of good quality rational decisions. Uh, so I'm really passionate that you can get better at it. And I'm improving all the time. Yes. Like I'm constantly trying to improve my skill at this because I actually think it's one of the most important skills in life because when everyone around you is losing their heads and getting stressed, like I kind of feel that I can actually stay quite detached and actually see what is really going on in a way that I honestly don't think I could, certainly 10 years ago and maybe even five years ago. And I think it's something that we always just need to keep doing. So I noticed that there'll be periods, like when I first learned about it quite a few years ago, and I thought, oh, wow, this is so simple. I remember reading it in a book and then going, wow, I can do this for so many things. And then as time goes by, I kind of forget about it and I see the old habits coming back. Yeah. So it's something, doesn't matter how experienced you are at this work, you just need to always keep checking your thoughts and always doing the reframing, but it is so liberating. And, and it costs zero dollars, exactly. zero pounds, right? Let's be really clear yeah. about this. Right? You don't need any weights. You don't need to buy stuff. You just need to commit to yourself. Don't do it for anyone else, Yeah. right? Do it for yourself. Because when you do it, you will be a better human. What's the lesson that has taken you the longest to learn? That your value and worth as a human being is not dependent on how much you do, how much you achieve, or how much success you get. Mm. That has been a lesson that I've only learnt in the past few years. I very much took on the idea as a child. Um, and I'm not blaming my parents for this. They were trying to drive me to be the best that I could be. But if I ever came back from school with 19 out of 20, it was always, well, what did you get wrong? Why didn't you get 20 out of 20? Yeah. If I came second in the class, well, who came top? Why weren't you top? Um, and I, very, I realized that I took on this idea as a young kid that I'm only valued when I'm top dog, when I'm top of the class, when I get straight A's. And I spoke to mum about this because I've written about this uh, in my new book. And I, I, as I was writing it, I went around to mums. I said, hey, mum, can I ask you, why, why did you always say that to me? Why did you and dad say that? And she said to me, hey, look, we just wanted the best for you. You know, we know how capable you are. So we wanted you to, you know, fulfill yeah. your capabilities. We didn't do the same thing with your brother. He has a different, you know, he's got different skills to you. And again, talking about perspective, I think, well, isn't that interesting? From their side of the table, they're making sure I fulfill my potential. 
from my side of the table, I take on the belief that I'm only good enough. I'm only worthy. I'm only enough when I'm the best. Yeah. And I can tell you that that is a very lonely place to mm. be. What is a life of greatness to you? For me, a life of greatness is the ability to be present and engaged in every single moment. Greatness is also about not beating yourself up mm. when you fall short, looking at these opportunities in life as teaching opportunities, not as ways to beat yourself up, talk down to yourself, make yourself feel guilty. Like, oh no, well, that's interesting. I thought I was getting pretty good at this, but clearly I wasn't able to be present today. Oh, maybe after I've been interviewed, maybe I should do two minutes of breathing or go for a five minute walk first just to process that and then show it with my kids or whatever it might be. So it's about looking for opportunities in everyday life to grow and to get better. When you say greatness to me, those are all the things that come up for me. Rongan, thank you for sharing all your wisdom today. It has been so unbelievably helpful and definitely will be for all the people that are listening. So I really appreciate it. Thank you. Sarah, thanks so much for having me. If you've enjoyed this episode, then I'd love you to join my community on Instagram at Sarah Grimberg, where we post videos and behind-the-scenes footage of each recording. You can also join my private Facebook group, Live Life Greatly, where we discuss the content in this episode and many more, as well as give advice and tips on how to live a life of love and meaning. To purchase my ebook, Finding Greatness, head to sarahgrimberg.com. And if you love what you heard, then we'd love you to hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app and leave a five-star review. It will help us share this wisdom with others. A Life of Greatness's executive producer is me, Sarah Grimberg. Audio producers, Matt Curry and Nicola Sitch. Special thanks to Grant Tothill for bringing this dream to life. For more episodes, search a Life of Greatness podcast, download the new listener app now and listen for free.